Sales Sooners, episode 111, Scott Brown, Executive Director at UpRamp. If you can say 20% of the words and still get your listener to yes or get them to that next most immediate yes, then you don't need to tell the other 80%. Just stop. This is Sales Tuners with Jim Brown, the only weekly show where we talk about the attitude, action, and ability that gets sales reps and entrepreneurs to grow their revenue from $1 million to more than $10 million in just two years. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. Got money on my mind, I can never get enough. And every time I step up in the building, everybody hands go up. It's time. It's time. It's Sales Tuners time. I'm Jim Brown, your host, and our weekly inspiration comes from George Bernard Shaw, who said a life spent making mistakes is not only more honorable, but more useful than a life spent doing nothing. Today, I'm joined by former actor turned entrepreneur Scott Brown. Having started eight companies over the last 25 years, from topical analgesics to bounced email, Scott is now the executive director of UpRamp, an accelerator bridging the gap between startups and the cable industry. Also, an active advisor and investor, Scott shares his unique blend of startup grit, technology, and clean messaging with startups around the world. Scott and I cover a lot of ground in this chat, from his failed Super Bowl ad to why nobody wanted to hire him. He even had one hiring manager call him an asshole. These failures led him to uncover the need for great communication. Listen all the way through to hear his four-step Moneyball framework for messaging. All right, make sure you stick around until the end where I'll give my recap and top takeaways. You can also check out all the links and show notes at salestutors.com slash 111. But now, let's get to the conversation where Scott opens up about his passion for the magic of human connection. One of the things that I love to talk about is that there's like this passion I have around the way that people connect to each other, to communities and companies, and how when you smash those things together, that's where the magic happens, right? It's the the magic of human connection is the thing that kind of turns me on. Well, you talk about the, the, the magic connection there. You've had the dubious honor of spending two and a half million dollars on the 21st worst Super Bowl ad in history, if I got that correct. And I, I actually know they, they ranked such things, but I got to hear more about this. Yeah, it's good to be on a list, right? Thanks for that. Yeah, it's amazing. The, the Super Bowl ads are, um, I don't know, it's a blessing and a curse. I had uh, a startup that I did back in 99 that unfortunately, it wasn't one of the successful ones, but we had a long board meeting one day to talk about how we could get more users. If you remember that era of the original dot-com push, you didn't actually have to make money, right? You just had to get users. And so we talked about it, said this would be a great way to try to get customers. And so we decided to do it. And we spent a lot of money to build the ad first off and then decided, well, let's wait and see what happens. And about Seven days before the Super Bowl of 2000, we got a phone call, said there was a 30-second spot that opened up in the fourth quarter, and would we be interested? We called a big board meeting, and we all voted on it and said, yes, let's do it. So we spent two and a half million bucks to get that 30 seconds, threw together uh, the content, built a U.S. distributed website that spanned the globe or spanned the U.S. in seven days, which back then you really couldn't do. It was nearly impossible to build that kind of infrastructure in seven days. But we worked day and night to make it happen. And I sat there watching the logs 
as the ad ran. And we got a huge influx of users, uh, which was very exciting. And about 60 days later, we shut down the company. Oh, my goodness. Now, 99, uh, if I remember correctly, this was the Rams and the Titans. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's right. And so if you remember the end of that game, there was that uh, big play where he's diving towards the end zone and maybe he made it, maybe he didn't. Yeah. Yeah. So we were in the commercial break right before that. Oh, my goodness. That, that's where I was going with that because, yeah, that was an incredible fourth quarter to run an ad. And you're saying you're right there at the end of the game. So you saw the huge spike, but 60 days later, you're shutting down the company. I mean, we'll talk about more things than just that, but help, help me understand, like, what, what was going on? What happened? Yeah, well, you know, the idea was pretty cool. We, uh, we had this idea to do something like Google AdWords in email before there was really a Google AdWords. So if you think about it, maybe you're talking to your buddy over email about having a barbecue this weekend. Uh, we could identify that, slip a little ad in the bottom of your email for Omaha Steaks, for example. And if your buddy clicked that ad to buy the steaks for the barbecue, you would make a buck. And so it was kind of like affiliate marketing plus uh, contextual email content that did the targeting. So it was really kind of cool, a great idea for its time. We raised a little over eight million bucks on the back of a napkin, which is what you did back in '99, and uh, we hired a lot of people really fast. I had moved out to Colorado for that opportunity and brought a lot of people along with me, friends and families that had worked for me in companies prior. And at the time, we had tons of money to spend. Right, I believed the venture capitalists that. We didn't need to actually make money or sell anything. We just had to get users. And so I'm bringing people out, right? And I'm, uh, I'm listening to all these people tell me I'm going to be a billionaire. And I believed them. We realized we had to raise more money. Market crashed in the spring of 2000. And we simply couldn't raise anymore. And I remember this day as if it were yesterday. We brought everybody into a big conference room. And I had to fire 120 people on a Friday let everybody go, friends and family, people I'd moved to Colorado, relationships I'd built over you know, dozens of years that were all shattered in a moment. My goodness, what, a, what an incredible story. I mean, you just, you completely encapsulated that time period uh, almost perfectly, right? It, it, that's, the, that's kind of the storybook of, of that area. That's incredible. And, you know, you learn a lot more from the failure than you do from the success oftentimes. And for me, it was the same way. You know, I, I was able to kind of relearn what it meant to build a company. You know, I, I had built and sold companies prior to that that operated much more like a lemonade stand, right? You build something for more than it costs to make and you sell it to people over and over again. It, it doesn't have to be so hard. But in 99, this exuberance was kind of overwhelming and, and everything changed. We thought all we had to do was to get customers and to build a brand. And then we could IPO on the back of that. And so it's a, it's a good, hard lesson to learn. Building something that people want to buy and selling it over and over again is really the magic to building a great company. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. And, and Scott, as you know, in this show, we talk about the attitude, actions, and abilities that have led to your success. So I want to understand what you're doing today. What is UpRamp and, and why does a typical customer uh, work with you or a typical startup? UpRamp is a platform to connect radical entrepreneurs to the most powerful network in the world. My parent company of UpRamp is called Cable Labs. Cable Labs is this weird little nonprofit here in beautiful Colorado. 
And strangely enough, everything that you've touched on the internet today from the moment you woke up until the time we hopped on this conversation was either invented, perfected, or standardized through cable labs. Things like always on internet, Wi-Fi, voice over IP, the video codecs that drive all the video on the internet, all of that stuff was created with the help of cable labs. And so there's this weird little think tank in the middle of Colorado that nobody knows about. And yet, while they represent these, uh, this massive cable broadband mobile industry, that industry has a really hard time working with startups and emerging tech companies. The sales cycle selling into someone like a Comcast or Charter or Cox can often be 36 months. Wow. I mean, yeah, insane. Think about that, right? You get a great idea. You go have this wonderful first meeting where you get your very first yes the day your kid goes off as a sophomore in high school, but you don't get a check until he graduates. Brutal. That's so, incredible. Yeah, right? And so I came on board here about three years ago to build this platform to help startup founders get traction a lot faster inside this industry by leveraging the relationships that Cable Labs has for the past 30 years. My upramp programs have been able to shrink that sales cycle from 36 months down to three. And that dramatically changes not only the innovation landscape for this uh, half a trillion dollar industry, but the prospects of startups selling into the connectivity world. Yeah, I would, I would certainly say so. That's incredible. But now, Scott, you haven't always been the connector that you are today. So take me way back and, and help me even understand, like, how did you get into sales? I was actually an actor way back in the day and stumbled into my first couple of companies just by happenstance, just by defaulting to yes in a couple of weird conversations. I ended up starting and selling two businesses in 24 months. But then- That's impressive. Yeah. And it was all happenstance. I got totally lucky. But then pre-internet days, here I was, a uh, actor who had started and sold two companies and, uh, and nobody would hire me for anything. And I would show up at a job interview and somebody would say, well, what, what's your experience? Well, you know, I, I just did Shakespeare in the Park and uh, I'd sold this topical analgesic company. Like, what the hell is this? <laughs> that doesn't mean anything. And I'll, you know, I'll tell you this story, Jim. So I'm, um, I don't know, maybe nine months into retirement after selling my second company, looking for something else to do. And finally, I get this invitation to go interview at this strange little company in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, that was doing freight bill, pre-audit, and payment. It's a weird little industry where if you think about someone like Briggs & Stratton, they ship pig iron in freight trucks all over the country. And they negotiate these rates with the carriers. Well, the carrier would send the bill back to Briggs and, uh, and it would always be off by a couple pennies per pound. And so what this company would do is they would take those freight bills, check them, make sure they were right. They would tell Briggs on a Wednesday that you owe 5 million in uh, freight. Briggs would wire the money on a Friday. This company would sit on it for three or four days and then pay the bill. So they made all their money on the float. Yeah, cool, right? So so weird little company. I show up for this job interview and I sit down in a conference room. And this guy walks in, right? He must be, I don't know, he's as old as Moses 
if he's a day. And, you know, plaid jacket, the whole thing. And he sits down and we start having this conversation. He's, he's asking me what my background is, what I do, why I'm interested in a sales job. And we're having a nice conversation, I think. And about 45 minutes in, he leans across the table and he looks me dead in the eye. And he says, Brown, you're kind of an asshole, but I'm going to hire you anyway. And it changed my life. This guy, Norm, was the consummate salesperson. He knew everything about how to sell. And he took me under his wing and and taught me everything I know today. It was life-changing, all because... You know, he took a chance on this weird guy who used to be an actor. And uh, it's one of those relationships that uh, that I treasure. Now, Norm, sad to say, is long gone. But uh, the lessons he taught, I think, live on. I thoroughly enjoy that story and can relate to uh, quite a bit of it. People taking chances on me that maybe shouldn't have. And also even being said or being called Brown, you're an asshole. It's uh, definitely fit uh, <laughs> me a couple of times as well. It's probably happened to both of us, right? That's right. Well, the reason why you and I got connected was with your passion around messaging, right? And then as I was doing some research on you, I was reading a deck and you talk about the one big mistake that a lot of uh, salespeople have is that they're pitching the final goal instead of the next most immediate goal. And I, I resonated so much with that. But what, what do you mean by that? Oh, this happens all the time, right? You get a a sales guy or a founder, they go to a meeting with uh, the CEO and uh, it's a big conference room and they sit down to give the pitch and it's going really well, right? And about 20 minutes in, the CEO says, all right, this sounds good. I'll, I'll introduce you to, you know, Bob in IT or Sally in accounting or, you know, whatever the next step is. And as the sales guy or the founder, it's really exciting. So what do you do? You tell them some more. Oh, well, you know, did you know that we could also do this and we can also do this? But the the reality is that it can only go downhill from there. So I tell founders that as soon as you get that yes, if you know what your next most immediate yes is going into the call, as soon as you hear it, shut up, <laughs> say thank you and leave, right? Get out. You've got your win. There will be another chance to uh, to tell another story another day and make the rest of the sale. But there is no CEO in the world who whips out the checkbook and presses hard to make duplicate copies right there in that meeting. That never happens. And so, you know, I guess that's the big lesson. Know what your next most immediate yes is. And as soon as you hear it, shut up. So why do so, because you're right, why do so many sales reps, CEOs, founders uh, try that? Why are, why are they always continuing to push, even though it's your point, they've got the next immediate next step. But, but tell me about that. Like, why is that happening? You know, I can speak a little bit for founders. Sales guys, I think might be trickier, but let's talk about the startup founder for a second. From their perspective, they have invested blood, sweat, and tears into building this company. And everything they've had to build is critical to its success. All these features and widgets and pieces of the puzzle, right? Some of them may uh, appear tiny to the listener, but they took months and months to create from the founder's perspective or the developer's perspective. And so for them, if somebody doesn't know how hard it was or all the different features of their solution, then they haven't done a good job in explaining it. 
But that's just wrong, right? I guess when I'm talking to people and what I encourage people to think about is it's not really about you. It's about your listener. And so if you can say 20% of the words and still get your listener to yes or get them to that next most immediate yes, then you don't need to tell the other 80%. Just stop. You got to find the way to only speak enough that you get to the point where you're progressing the conversation forward. And it's not about all the other stuff. Right. And you started to allude to the fact that, you know, the, the, the only thing that can happen is it goes down from there, right? You end up talking yourself out of the sale. And I, I want to share this story because I, I've never shared this before on the podcast. I've shared it many times <clears throat> in the training that I do, but never on the, on the show. But it's this notion of being able to, one, shut up and let the thing happen. But also that if you are the founder, it, you're, you're right, Scott. I mean, it's your baby. You have put so much work into every single Manu Depot. You want to make sure everyone knows the work that you put in, right? So I was with a company, probably one of the most successful companies that I've worked for. Uh, this was back in 2011. We were selling to, here's the irony of this. So the story that I'm about to tell is, is being told to you, Carson, you and I are having, on the day the company that I sold to uh, filed for bankruptcy. So I was selling to Sears, oh, who at ouch. the time, yeah, was a Fortune 50 company. And you know, this was a, a seven-figure deal. It had been in the works for six months. It was the final meeting with the CMO of the company. We went up to Hoffman States in Chicago. You know, I, I know how to quarterback deals. I, every single person on my team knew exactly what they were allowed to say, when to say it, what, you know, everything. It was all planned to a T. We get to the end. I deliver my, my closing statement and I, and I look at the CMO and I know that I'm not saying another word, like not until it's over. And, you know, in real, reality, Scott, it probably took 45, 50 seconds, but it seemed like three minutes. And sitting next to me was the president of our company who was not a salesperson, who is the one who had to put all that blood and sweat and his own money and all that into the company. And he could not handle the silence. And he started to talk about a feature. And I'm so glad that I was sitting next to him. I reached under the table, Scott, and I grabbed his leg and I squeezed so hard. He knew I was saying, shut the, right? And he did. He stopped talking. The CMO kind of like looks down at the at the uh, the contract, looks back up at me, folds his arms, signs it, and we're done. And when we walked out of the room, he the, the president looked at me and goes, how the f- did you know to do that? And I said, well, Kevin, that's the difference between a salesperson and a founder. So anyway, I, I've never told that story on the show. I wanted to share it, but, but you're absolutely right. And I, way too many people uh, are doing it. So Scott, let's talk about messaging. Let's let's dive deep into this, right? You've got uh, a framework that you've created, four simple uh, stories, and I kind of want to go through each of those. The first one being the hook. Tell me how you're helping startups create that hook so that they can get the, the conversation rolling. You know, messaging can be hard. Uh, building a company is hard. But we find that most times founders spend their time writing the code and not worrying about how they talk about their company afterwards. And so my big passion in life is to help founders and sales professionals figure out how to talk about these great ideas in ways that people actually want to buy. And so you mentioned the hook. The hook is one of four what I call moneyball stories, ways that you can communicate so that the other person can hear, right? It's like I was saying before, it's not about you anymore. As soon as you're talking to a customer, it's now about them. And the hook is a simple way to smash together something you know about your listener 
and something about you. What's the the why and then the what, right? How do you smash together something your customer wants with something that you potentially do? We use a framework to devise this hook we call clean messaging. And it's a kind of like a canvas, much like the lean startup canvas or the value prop canvas that people use. And you can use this to combine together that core deep human need that people might have with the one simple thing that you have. And then we help them find a way to make that, you know, bite-sized and uh, audience-friendly, repeatable, some simple way, almost like the haiku of your brand. And that's really the thing. It's the poetry of startups or the poetry of selling. Uh, How do you take the big message of what you do and boil it down to one simple thing. And so when I talk about it for UpRamp, our startup platform here, you may have heard me before. I talk about it as a platform to connect radical entrepreneurs to the most powerful network in the world. That's it. And then I stop talking. And typically somebody will say, huh, that's interesting. Tell me more. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going. Is like, that's, that's what you want them to do. You want to hear that. Hmm, that's interesting. How do you do that? Or, or what, what's that entail or something like that? That's right. Yeah. Just enough to get people thinking in the right direction, to move their elephant just enough that you have the chance to follow up. I, I think that's fantastic. And I love that you applied it to the, you know, the, the company you're working for with UpRamp, how you guys do it. So let's talk about the numbers. I know that's the, the next part of the, the Moneyball story there. So what are you doing here with, with, uh, with numbers? Number stories are really interesting and, and they're important, but I think we have to remember that nobody buys things because of the numbers. And I know that might sound a little crazy, but nobody remembers numbers. They remember the way numbers made them feel. So I'm going to take you back a little bit and talk about some science. Do you know this guy, Jonathan Haidt? Have you ever read his book, The Righteous Mind? I have not. Oh my goodness. You should, we should pause, go read the book and come back in like next week because it will change your life. Jonathan Haidt, The Righteous Mind, scientist out of Virginia somewhere. This guy did a bunch of neuropsychology to figure out how the human brain actually works. And if you think about that emotional part of your brain, that fight or flight, like reptilian brain, The way he describes that, it's like an elephant in your brain. It's the thing that actually makes all the big decisions, drives the emotional side of the choices you make. And then there's this rational part of your brain. You could think about the rational part of the brain as it's evolved along with language as like a person riding on the back of the elephant. So if you think about that metaphor, the human brain makes decisions like the elephant based on the emotion, but then this rider describes the way the elephant moves. And so you could think about uh, all the decisions we make in life, those stories we hear about how people make human judgments in the first 10 seconds of meeting them. That's all true. It's the elephant moving. And then we use language and words and data to describe the elephant's movement after the fact. You've got to use numbers at some point, but if you remember that numbers are actually going to support a decision that's already been made, then you know if you haven't moved that 
other human's elephant yet, the numbers aren't going to mean anything because you can't actually change somebody's mind using numbers. I could speak to that rider on the elephant all day long, but they can't actually make the elephant move. They could kick it, they could yell it, they could throw some food out in front of it, but it's really hard for the rider of an elephant to change the direction. And so if you haven't moved the elephant first, none of the numbers will matter. That makes a lot of sense that you, that, that the numbers uh, are only supporting a decision that's already been made. I think that's fantastic. It goes back again to the emotional side of us versus the logical side of us, the rational. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm tracking and I love the way that you are telling stories and that messaging that you are giving me is fantastic. So let, let's dive into the origin, right? Where the big idea came from. How are you crafting that? If you think about the hook and the numbers story and some of the other ones in this framework, it's all about the audience first, right? You position the listener as the hero of the story and yourself as like Obi-Wan or Yoda showing up. In an origin story, it's the opposite. You're positioning yourself as the hero. And so we use origin stories when we want the listener to join you. It's that story you tell that people want to jump in and be a part of it. So maybe you uh, started working on this problem 10 years ago at the university and we went round and round and we developed some stuff and we got a couple of patents and uh, Bill was instrumental in the success. He did all the core science, but then he had a heart attack and died. And so we had to find Sally and Sally came together and now we've built this team of 10 people. And that team of 10 people has been able to release this product to the world. And it's those types of origin stories where people are like, oh shit, I want to be a part of this. I need to jump in and have that origin be part of my origin. I can totally see that with, as you said, venture capital. I can also see that in recruiting uh, great employees to come join the team, come join the movement. Uh, I've had my fair share of, of, of recruiting. Give me some ideas of how we could still use that in a, in a sales cycle as well, Scott. You know, in a sales call, this works a little bit later on. So one thing that I've found is that if you, if you start a conversation, you know, here's a little bit about what we do. One of the laziest first questions you are almost always going to get, somebody who's like half paying attention, they'll say, huh, that's interesting. How'd you come up with that? And so that's your opportunity to recapture the conversation with a great origin story. And one of the things I've always done in my career in sales is oftentimes your best customers can also uh, be great mentors or Sherpas on what types of features and things you can build later on. So you want those early customers to feel like they're a part of your team. And so using that origin story, you can build a bigger tent to bring people who are leaning towards helping you into the creation of the story of your company. The majority of the clients that I work with, Scott, are startups, tech startups. And, and I, as soon as you said that, I started shaking my hands like, okay, I'm, I'm going to take this. And as soon as we're done recording, I'm going to ship it to two or three of them because that, it's so good. They are out there building great products. They're, they're getting some initial traction, but they need to make those prospects, those early customers, part of their evolution to the point where they can feel that they have influence over the direction or of, of some of the features of some of the, the core benefits. And that's going to get them bought in and, and probably not just bought in, but uh, on board for, for a long time. That's right. That's right. And people can leverage that with advisory boards and all sorts of other things and ways to capture that early customer momentum. But more than anything, as a frontline 
you know, carrying a bag salesperson, I tell you, there is nothing better than having a great origin story that your customer wants to be a part of to join you in your mission to make this product or this company or this idea gain traction in the world. I love it. It's a great tactic. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I can't wait to start employing that. Like I said, both in my own work as well as with some of my clients, that's going to be good. The, the, the last story here, uh, Scott, is probably one of my favorites, the evil empire, getting you to uh, you know, tell the story of the, the guy, the big bad guy that you're facing. So uh, let's take a deep dive uh, into that. You know, oftentimes uh, when we're out on the road or as a founder, you're, people ask you to stand up in front of a large group of people. Could be five people, could be a conference room full of people, could be a, a giant uh, you know, stadium for a pitch competition. When that happens, you need a good framework that helps you tell a very big story on how your product or idea or company is going to change the world. And so we use a framework we call the evil empire made up of about five simple steps. Uh, the first step is very early on, identify the bad guy. Who's the Darth Vader in this story? Who's the, the, the big, mean, bad, horrible thing that we need to stop? And the more human and emotional you can make that bad guy, the better. Right. So nobody's ever gone to war to stop, you know, inadvertent server alerts. Nobody gives a shit. But uh, people will go to war for holiday time or dinner with their family or, you know, those deep core human things. And so as the founder or the person writing the story, what's that one hill that your uh, customer will die on? Identify that deep human need that they have and make that the bad guy. The second step is to identify why now. Right. Now that we know Darth Vader is out there, why do we have to get rid of Darth Vader right now? What builds the urgency? Right? What's the Alderaan moment for your business? What's the thing that's going to drive action immediately? And you're not talking about, Scott, like an actual competitor, right? Although it might be, and you might even actually name this evil empire. It's just, it's the fight. It's the war that you are positioning against. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's that uh, it's the core human thing that you really need. It could be loss or pain or love or fear or some of these big core human things that influence the bad guy. It's almost never effective to say our bad guy is Amazon, right? Or our bad guy is Google. That's that's not enough, right? Nobody really hates Google that much that they're going to go to war. But there's something else that your customer really has pain over or really fears. You got to pull that out. And then you've got to tie it to some timeline, right? Like what is the reason that we need to drive towards a solution here as fast as possible? Is this missing holidays or carrying your phone or checking your phone every night before you go to bed on your server farm? Is that destroying your marriage, you know, your family life? If you don't solve it now, how many more Christmases are you going to have? Wow, you're getting me emotional on that. I, I'm, I'm with you now. So, so paint the picture uh, of the enemy. Make sure that you're able to communicate why now, why this is an issue we got to talk about now, and then put it on a timeline. That's what I'm, I'm picking up from this. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now, once you do that, then you've got to show your promised land as early as possible. Those first two steps 
who's the bad guy and why now? I mean, 90 seconds, maybe two minutes setting up that thing up. But then you've got to show your product right away, show your solution, show your vision of the world as fast as possible, right? We've built a ragtag uh, group of resistance fighters that we call Resistance Inc. And we know that together with your help, we can overthrow Darth Vader and <laughs> the Galactic Empire. I love it. Well, Scott, I've been sitting here taking uh, furious notes. I, like I said, I'm going to start applying this stuff in in my own world today, and then I'm going to be able to bridge that into some of my uh, my own clients. So, uh, Scott, I've got to take a quick break so that I can say thank you to the sponsor that introduced us. Uh, when I, we come back, it's going to be time for the money round. So you don't go away. And sales sooners, you don't go away either. We'll be right back. Costello is pioneering the way companies build and execute sales playbooks. The platform helps sales reps prepare for calls, ask timely questions, tell relevant stories, and sync insights back to their CRM, all while showing managers and reps the gaps in every single deal so they can work them together to move them forward. With Costello, sales leaders can identify what's working on the front line and replicate success across their entire team. Learn more and see a demo at andcostello.com. That's A-N-D-C-O-S-T-E-L-L-O.com. We're back. And it's time for the money round. Scott, are you ready for the money round? Jim, I have never been more ready. Here we go. Bring it on, man. What's the one thing that has contributed most to your transformation from normal to exceptional? I would say the, the big focus for me, the thing that's transformed my life is to really focus on the people I'm talking with. Right. I believe that there's the thing, you know, the golden rule, right? Do unto others how you would want done unto you. But I think there's also a platinum rule. Um, do unto others how they want to be done too, right? Speak to others the way they need to hear. That big shift in my life, I think, is part of that transformation. If you were to start over today in sales, what would you tell yourself to spend the next 30 days doing? Sharpening your axe. You know that old thing with Abraham Lincoln, right? Where uh, they said, you've got four hours to chop down a tree. How are you going to spend your time? And he says he'll uh, spend the first three hours sharpening his axe. And I think for me, um, if I were to start over, that would be what I do. I would, uh, I would spend every moment I could trying to learn the art and the craft of sales before I made that first call. There's a lot of stuff out there, a lot of great content. Uh, this podcast, amazing content uh, around the art and craft of selling. And I think uh, I would spend more time trying to figure that out before I just jump in trying to close a deal. Two-part question for you here. Which phrase describes you best and why I love to win or I hate to lose? Loss aversion is uh, a big driver for most of us. It probably drives me as well. Yeah, I would say loss aversion. I don't like to lose. What's a book, Scott, that you've read multiple times or always find yourself recommending to others? I would tell you the one I read every year religiously is Hamlet. I would read that uh, every year. Everything you need to know about humans is in that play. Um, the other book that I recommend a lot, we talked about a little earlier, the Jonathan Haidt book, The Righteous Mind. And there's a great one by Chris Voss called Never Split the Difference about uh, negotiation from a FBI hostage negotiator perspective, which is really good. 
you're 100% spot on that. I have had the fortune to have Chris on this show and he did not disappoint. Uh, He's awesome. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Sales Sooners, if you'd like to check out Scott's suggestions of Hamlet, The Righteous Mind, or Never Split the Difference for free, head on over to salestuners.com slash book. And there you can sign up for a free 30-day trial of Audible and browse their over 150,000 titles. Again, that's salestuners.com slash book, and you can get your free book today. Scott, what is currently at the top of your bucket list? You know, my uh, my 10-year-old son just finished uh, all of those books, The Lightning Thief One. Anyway, so he's read this whole series of books by uh, Rick Riordan about uh, this great kid who's actually a Greek god. And so right now, the top of the bucket list for me and my family is a trip to Greece. What's the biggest piece of advice you have for all the sales tuners out there grinding today? When you're sitting down with somebody, remember that it's really about them. It's not about you. The stories that you have to tell, the product you want to sell, the business you're growing, that's all great. But really, communication is about speaking in a way that the listener understands, not in the way that you understand. I highly recommend you check out the Canvas framework Scott has built at cleanmessaging.co. Getting your message right is so hard, and Scott is able to break things down into bite-sized chunks to make it easier. Let's get to my top takeaways. Number one, figure out the why first. Nearly everyone you come across knows what to do, but do they know why to do it? If they know, do you. As you work through building a hook that resonates with your target audience, it's critical you understand their why. Then, and only then, you can deliver your what in a bite-sized manner they can understand. Your goal is to get them to hear it and say, hmm, that's interesting, tell me more, or hmm, how do you do that? Number two, numbers only support a decision that's already been made. If you're using statistics early in your sales process, please stop. Nobody buys things because of the numbers. This may even sound crazy, but nobody even remembers the numbers or statistics that you cite. They do, however, remember the way the numbers made them feel. We've talked a lot on this show about how the brain works, but it bears repeating. Human beings do not make decisions logically. They make them emotionally and then use rationality to justify their decision. Number three, determine the one hill your customer is willing to die on. What is the deep human need that if not solved will cause your buyer to give up in frustration? Figure it out and make that the bad guy in your sales story. It's not a competitor. No one really hates another company so much they're willing to go to war over it. It's something bigger inside of them they know could be better. That's your job, to identify the desire, where it's coming from, and why it matters right now. That's it. Those are my takeaways, but I'd love to hear yours. Please tweet at me at SalesTuners or shoot me an email, jim at SalesTuners.com. I reply to every message that I get. All right. I hope to see you next week. Until then, I'm Jim Brown. Let's make it rain. Thank you for listening to Sales Tuners. Stay up to date at www.salestuners.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. And they stay there. And they say yeah.